0: Well, if you wouldn't mind taking the word of God, please, and turning with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians, chapter 1. Let's begin reading with the first verse this morning. Philippians, chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, With the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. And as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. we end our reading there this morning. Trust that God will bless His word. Let's seek the Lord's face. Our Father in heaven, we come before Thee this morning, Lord, conscious, yet not conscious enough of our total and absolute inability to do anything good outside of You. And so, Lord, we come like a beggar to Thee with our hands outstretched, saying, Lord, please, give us just a crumb. Lord, would You feed us from Your Word? Lord, would You... Help the preacher this morning, that your people might be blessed and built up for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, today we come to the third part and the last part of Paul's introduction to the epistle to the Philippians. And we noted that the introduction is found in verses 1 through 11, the salutation, verses 1 through 2, Paul's thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. And then Paul's praying in verses 9 through 11. And we worked through verses 3 through 8 recently, noting that there were five um, sources of joy that the Apostle Paul found with relation to the church. Well, now Paul turns to his prayer for them. And no doubt this praying attitude for them grows out of the joy he had as the joy grew out of his praying. And Paul writes in verse 9, and this I pray. Now Paul prays. He already spoke of this in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. And if you read verse 4 and you wanted to know, I wonder what Paul prays for in his closet. I wonder what Paul says when he's alone with God and his heart is open before the throne of God and he's praying for the Philippians. What did Paul say? What kind of things did he pray for? How does Paul pray? Well, we have, a wonderful, we have wonderful news this morning for you. We know exactly what he prayed in verses 9 through 11. Paul says exactly what he prayed for. And this I pray. You see, Paul is always either praying, requesting prayer, or instructing prayer in his epistles. And this demonstrates the estimation that he had of prayer. Now, one area in which the Apostle Paul was always careful to pray for was the spiritual maturity of the people that he ministered to. It's interesting to find that he very rarely prays for the physical needs of the churches or the people that he ministers to. He was most concerned about their spiritual maturity, most concerned about their spiritual growth. And I just have to think about how different that is from many church prayer meetings and from, sadly, sometimes my own praying. How often do you hear, pray for such and such as hurt toe or such and such as cold or whatever? Those are fine things to pray for. We're to pray for everything no matter how small or big. But how often do you hear in a prayer meeting, oh, we need to pray that we would grow in spiritual maturity. That's what we really need. Typically, that's not on the top ten list of prayer requests. And typically, for our, own, for our own prayer lives, that's not on the top ten list of prayer requests for our brethren. Perhaps maybe even for ourselves. But this was Paul's priority. Spiritual maturity. Even beyond the physical needs. Now, Paul prayed for physical needs. But the one thing that he longed for was that they would become mature in Christ. He prayed for their sanctification because that was his burden. Throughout Paul's epistles, he prays for spiritual maturity. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 16 through 23, and chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, he prays for the spiritual maturity of the Ephesians. In Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12, he prays for the spiritual maturity of the Colossians. In Romans chapter 15 verses 5 through 6, Paul prays for the spiritual maturity of the Romans. In the the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 9 through 13, Paul prays for the spiritual maturity of the Thessalonians. And here for the Philippians, he prays for their spiritual maturity. He's always praying for their spiritual maturity because he was burdened for their spiritual maturity. And this is a very interesting thing I just want to note very quickly. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul wrote this. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And what we learn from that is, is that desire is inextricably linked to what you pray for. Prayer is a duty. Prayer is a duty. That is true. God commands us to pray. I think at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 25. Paul says, brethren, pray for us. Prayer is a duty. But as, as one commentator noted, prayer is also a compulsion. Prayer comes naturally from the desire. And so prayer is the extension of your heart. The extension of the passion of your soul. And that's why prayer, above anything, is the clearest test of anybody's spirituality and it is the clearest test for anybody's heart if you don't pray that says a lot about your spirituality what you pray for what i pray for says a lot about our spirituality what we pray for gives us a window into our hearts And so the Apostle Paul's constant praying for their spiritual maturity, for the Colossians, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, the Romans, shows us that he was a man who was deeply burdened for the spiritual maturity of these churches. And if we want to pray like the Apostle Paul, we need the heart of the Apostle Paul. And it might not be that we just simply need to hear more and more, you need to pray, you need to pray, you need to pray. Sure, we need to pray. But prayer will grow out of that inner compulsion of a heart that longs for the spiritual good of the brethren. And so it really is an issue of the heart. Now, as Paul begins to pray for the spiritual maturity of the Philippians, he prays for seven characteristics to be cultivated in them number one, love. Number two, knowledge. Three, discernment. Four, excellence five, sincerity, six, inoffensiveness, and seven, fruitfulness. Love, knowledge, discernment, excellence, sincerity, inoffensiveness, and fruitfulness. Now, we noted a number of Sundays ago that the introduction anticipates a lot of the letter. And this is certainly the case with Paul's praying. Paul's praying for the Philippians for these seven characteristics to be cultivated in them because these were things that they had particular need of. But this doesn't mean that this praying of Paul is only for the Philippian church because these things can be found in just about any church that has ever been throughout all of time. These are really essentials for spiritual growth. And we are all to be striving for spiritual maturity. And if we if we want to see spiritual maturity in our churches and in ourselves, these seven characteristics are indispensable. You must have them. And that's why the Apostle Paul prays for them. So for the next couple of weeks, hopefully just this Lord's Day and the next, um, we'll consider Paul's prayer for spiritual maturity in verses 9 through 11. To begin with, Paul says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. So number one, we have love. Although love here could be speaking of their love to God, it makes more sense in the context that this is in reference to their love for the brethren. And the reason why is because in verses 7 through 8, Paul has just been speaking of his affection, of his own love for them. And so it would would seem to make sense, it would seem to be a good transition for them the Apostle Paul to speak about how he longs that their love for their brethren grow. Also in Philippians chapter two and verse two, we find that Paul's desire for them is that their love would grow. He says in verse two Fulfill you my joy that you be like minded, having the same love. So this is something that the Apostle Paul is burdened about for the Philippian church. That they would have the same love. That they would grow in love. So there may have been a deficiency with regards to love in the Philippian church. Love for the brethren. And so the Apostle Paul is praying for this. He says, I'm praying that your love may abound yet more and more. Abound yet more and more. Now the word translated abound here in Philippians 1 and verse 9 is a very interesting word. It's the word for overflowing. And it's really one of Paul's favorite words. He uses this in reference to love here and in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12, but he uses it in connection to a whole lot of other graces that the Christian that the Christian can know. He uses it in connection with hope, that the hope of the believers would overflow in the New Testament. He uses it with reference to faith, with knowledge, earnestness, thanksgiving, and the work of the Lord. Paul is constantly using this word, overflow, abound, more and more. And so what does he mean by this? This is what Paul is saying. Never be content with where you are as a Christian. Never be content. Paul was never content. Never. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, should we begin with verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. See, I've not apprehended. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The prize, the high calling, the mark is conformity to Jesus Christ. If you look at Philippians chapter 3. And Paul is saying, I've not apprehended. I'm not where I could be because I'm not fully conformed to Jesus. And he's going to press and strive as hard as he possibly can until one day he is fully conformed to Jesus. And he says, I am never content with where I am. And he doesn't, he doesn't have any kind of complacent content. There's a good content, but this complacent content for the church at Philippi. He says, I want you to grow more This was a loving church. Remember, we noted the affection they had for Epaphroditus. This was a loving church. And Paul says, no, no, no. I want you to love more. I want you to abound in love. I want you to overflow in love. When I was was a boy, I lived in Ohio out in the country. And behind my house, I had a creek that would run through my backyard. And when it didn't rain very much, there was a little bit of water in that creek But there is always water there, but just a little bit of water. But when it rained, that thing would fill up to the banks, and the banks would swell, almost overflowing the banks, and the water would go rushing down that creek. And what Paul is saying is this. Listen, you have love. You have love. Every believer has the love of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. 1 John 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Every believer has a love for the brethren. This This is what Paul is saying. Listen, I want your love that you have not just to be a little trickle. I want it to be a perpetual flood. I want it to overflow. I want it to sweep through the banks, through the creek bed of your life. I want it to touch everything and shape everything and color everything in your life. I want you to overflow with love, to abound with love, to be flooded with love. That's what Paul's saying. And so you and I may have love, but it might be just a little trickle. Paul earnestly longs that you and I, as well as the Philippians, would be abounding in love. Brothers and sisters, Paul wants us to abound in love but Paul wants us to abound in everything. He wants us to be abounding Christians. You know, it's, it's a sad thing, but many Christians compare themselves with other Christians who compare themselves with other Christians. And they think, you know, I'm doing pretty good, doing pretty well in comparison with all the other Christians that I know. But Paul didn't compare himself with Christians. He compared himself with Christ. Not Christians. And, you know, we can do something like we just kind of we say, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I've I think I've grown a decent amount. I don't yell as much as I used to. My wife's not as frustrated with me as she used to be. I'm doing pretty well, so I'm just going to sit back pour me a cup of sweet tea and watch the football game and just kind of enjoy the rest of my Christian life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, no, you keep fighting. You keep striving. You keep pressing. You keep pressing on towards conformity to Jesus Christ until the very last breath escapes your body. You never, I never have Ever the right to stop, ever the right to let up. I'm never off duty, and you're never off duty. See, that's exactly what the devil wants. You just lighten up a little bit. Don't be so serious about your Christianity. No, Paul is extremely serious about his Christianity. He is never satisfied, he is always pressing towards an overflowing life in every grace that Christ can give. But now we need to define love. What is this love that Paul wants to overflow? There is a secular article I saw that described love as this. Love is a force of nature. Unpredictable, irrefutable, free and uncontrollable. That's what love is according to the world. Love just happens. Love came upon me. I can't control it. I can't deny it. I can't refuse it. It's based on attraction. It's magical. It's surreal. That's what love, according to many, is. you hear this all the time with couples. I just don't love him or her anymore. You may hear that with a man and a woman who have been, they've gotten married and now the years have gone by and the initial butterflies in the stomach have worn off and there's dirty socks to be picked up and other things like that. And now the husband or the wife says, I just don't love them anymore. I mean, I can't control it. It's just a switch turns on and turns off. It's not something I control. I just don't love them anymore. Don't, you can't blame me. I just don't love them. This is absolutely contrary to the love that Paul is praying for. This is totally contrary to biblical love. The love Paul is praying for here can be defined in this way. It is a fruit of the Spirit, in imitation of Christ's love, whereby a believer, by a decision of their will, acts for the good of another, even when it comes at great personal sacrifice. It is an act of the will I must decide to love. To decide to, to act in love for the good of another. It's not something that comes and goes. It is a decision that I make. It is not a force of nature that's in, unpredictable, irrefutable, free, and whatever else they said. It is an act of the will. It is the spark of the divine Holy Spirit that is within the heart of every man and woman who is a believer, it is commanded by God in Mark chapter 12, verse 31. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. How can you command something that just happens? You can't. It's an action of the will. That's what biblical love is. Thou shalt love. And this is the exact same way that God loves us. Think about this. We were repulsive to God. There is nothing in you, there is nothing in me, that in any way, shape or form was attractive to God. Nothing. We were repulsive. The Bible says in Ephesians two and verse three, that we were the children of wrath. God's wrath was towards us. See, that's the only response a holy God can have for sin, and we are full of sin from our head to our toe. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, there's nothing good in me. And so God's wrath was towards us. And yet he loved us. Was there any attraction? Anything that moved God? No. Well, you might say, well, this person doesn't, they're not attractive anymore. Well, there's nothing attractive in you when God loved you. They frustrate me. They, they just continually, continually do things. That drive, drive me crazy. Well, think about how repulsed God was with our sin. And yet he loved us. And it cost him great personal sacrifice, did it not? Was there any greater sacrifice than the cross of Jesus? But God commendeth, he showed, he manifested his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to God for the unspeakable gift. What is that? That He gave His Son. I mean, the Father gave His own Son. And the Son gave His own life. You see, would you go all the way to a Roman cross, shamed, naked, crucified, dripping with blood, when there is nothing in the object of your love but everything that repulses you. And your own people, the Jewish people, stand around the cross and mock you and spit upon you. And we think, and we think, it costs us great personal sacrifice when we have to just keep our mouth quiet when somebody does something that hurts us and we want to lash out in anger. It cost God great personal sacrifice, brothers and sisters, and it was based on nothing but His will. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. Then why did He, Lord? For you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Why did you love me, Lord? There's nothing good in me. Why would you send your Son? Why would you go to the cross, Jesus? Because I loved you. I love you. I decided to love you. I set my love upon you. See, that's biblical love. That is the love that God had for us. I wish I could tell you more of what love is. We could go on all day describing it, but I think the best place to go is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I do want to turn there briefly just to point out Paul's wonderful description of love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word translated charity in our authorized version is the Greek word agape. And agape is the same word translated love in Philippians 1 and verse 9. So this is the same word. Paul, beginning with verse 4, says this, charity or love, and there are 14 characteristics here of love. And the first one, love is long-suffering. Paul says, charity suffereth long. Love suffers. It hurts to love. But true love suffers long. It perseveres in suffering. Make no bones about it. It's going to hurt you to love. But true love Suffers When you're frustrated, true love sits in quiet content and suffers because they love the other. Second, love is kind. Love is kind. Paul said, um, and is kind. It is gentle. It is gracious. It's not rash. It's not brash. It's not brutish. It's not harsh. It's kind. It's sweet. It's tender. It's gracious. Then Paul says, love three is not envious. He says it envieth not. Love doesn't become jealous. Love doesn't become envious of what another has, of another's talents, of another's possessions, of another's recognition. Love envies not. Fourth, love is not boastful. Paul said love vaunteth not itself. And the word vaunteth simply means it doesn't show off. Love's not a show off. Love doesn't go around bragging. Love's not about promoting itself. Love doesn't care about defending itself so that the other person thinks highly of them. Love is not boastful. Five, love is not proud. Paul says it's not puffed up, it's not proud, it's not arrogant. Six, love is not inappropriate. Paul says it does not behave itself unseemly. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. It's not inappropriate. It's not on the edge. It's not crude. Love acts with courtesy. Love considers others. Love speaks and acts with that which is appropriate. Seven, love is not selfish. The Apostle Paul says, Love seeketh not her own. Love does not seek itself. Love main, love's main concern is not with its own self-comfort, with its own self-joy, with its own self. It's concern with the other. It's concern with others. That's why Jesus Christ died, not for His own benefit. He died for the benefit of you and me. And that's the way true love is. It's not thinking about what gives me benefit you get, get into an argument about um, perhaps where are we going to go to dinner tonight husband says well I want to go out and get a hamburger wife says I want to go out and get Chinese food and they're going to fight tooth and nail until somebody somebody loves and says you know what I just want them to be happy right that's true love Love is not selfish, it's concerned with others. Eight: Love is not irritable. The Bible says it's not easily provoked. Love doesn't get irritated easily. Love doesn't fly off the handle and get upset about little things. Well, that little thing that you do makes me upset. Well, love isn't ir- easily irritated. No, love. love is sweet and kind and, and gracious, full of grace. Nine, love does not hold grudges. Paul says, love thinketh no evil. And the phrase there, thinketh no evil, is actually in reference to writing something down in a notebook, holding wrongs done as debts (laughs) owed. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't say, hey, you remember what you did a long time ago. I haven't forgotten that and you owe me. No, love doesn't say that. Love doesn't hold a grudge. In First Peter four and verse eight, we find this, this amazing little verse: "Love covers a multitude of sins." And the Greek there has the idea of throwing a veil over your sins. Love throws a covering over sin. Thinks no evil. I put out of my mind that evil that you've done to me. Ten. Love loves the right. Paul says, "Rejoiceth not in iniquity, in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth." True love rejoices in righteousness. Eleven. Love is forbearing. Beareth all things. That means it's talking about forbearing. Coming alongside somebody, gladly bearing their pain, gladly bearing their sorrow, putting their arm around them when they're, when they're weeping, when they're crying, when they're broken, when they're hurt, and hurting with them and loving them. It's forbearing. Twelve, love is believing. It believeth all things. What this means in the context of relations with people is that love is not suspicious. Love is not doubtful of everybody. Love, I think it was Wesley who said, it puts the best construction on everything. Meaning if you hear something of someone, love says, no, that can't be true. They wouldn't do that until you find out exactly what it is from the horse's mouth, as it were. Love always has the best construction. That brother, he he must have meant well in what he did. That's the attitude of love. Thirteen, love is hopeful. Love hopeth all things. It doesn't despair. It sees what is good in things and it always hopes in God. Fourteen, love is persevering. It endureth all things. It never ends. No matter how far it's pushed. You said you've gone to the limit of my love. You pushed me to the limit. There's no limit. There's no limit with love. It endures all things. Endures everything. And that is the biblical love that Paul so longs for in the church at Philippi. That they would know this kind of love. Not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a decision of the will to act for someone's good after the example of Christ, even at great personal sacrifice. Do we exemplify that in the way we speak to people? Are we acting like Christ? May God help us May God answer our own prayers if we can pray with the Apostle Paul. Lord, make my love abound in my home, in my church, in my family. And pray for others that you know that their love may abound. Well, the second thing is knowledge. Paul then says that he wants this love to abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, the little word in used here In knowledge. In knowledge. It could be translated with. And really the little word in carries the idea of with. Paul is saying, I want you to abound in love with knowledge, or in knowledge, with knowledge, and with judgment. Remember that he was praying that their love might overflow and abound, and I use the illustration of water coming through a creek. Well, it's kind of like this. Paul wants their love to overflow, but be controlled by two banks, knowledge and judgment. Now, judgment is simply the word for discernment. He wants their love to be controlled by knowledge and discernment. You see, love without knowledge, that is a love that is ignorant of truth, can be absolutely disastrous. The same as love that is without any discernment, Now, the knowledge Paul refers to here is spiritual knowledge. It's not knowledge about anything. It's not knowledge about astronomy or knowledge about math or science or whatever. This is spiritual knowledge, and it comes from the Word of God by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It is truth, God's truth, believed in the heart. It's not merely in the head. True knowledge is when somebody apprehends it in their heart. You might know something, but it's not really known unless it's believed and apprehended in the soul. You see, knowledge fuels love. And this is why Paul says your love needs to be coupled with knowledge. The more we know, the more truth we know about God and the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, theology in general, the greater will be our capacity to love. Because the more we understand who God is, the more we understand what Christ has done, the more we understand the union we have with Him and all the riches we have in Jesus Christ, the greater will be our understanding of the gospel, which is the great pattern of love. And so the greater will be our capacity to love. The more we know, the more we'll be able to love. And the Bible, it teaches us how to love. It teaches us what to do in certain situations, how love is lived out, and that's why we need knowledge. We need to grow in knowledge because knowledge fuels love. Knowledge also controls love. Knowledge controls love. Love must be controlled by truth. You see, love that is not controlled by truth is not true love, and it is disastrous. Take, for example, somebody says... As I used the illustration earlier, I don't love my spouse anymore. I'm going to leave them because I love somebody else. There's somebody else I love. Sorry, but the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives. Now what God has put together, let no man put asunder. It is not true love if it's not love controlled by Truth. That's not love. Love is when the husband or the wife, despite the other's failures, continues to act toward them for their good. We hear a lot today about issues of same gender. Love. You hear the common love wins. Someone says, Well, how can it be wrong for me, whom of one gender, to love, excuse me, as they would say to love, somebody of the same gender. What's wrong with that? It's love. I have an attraction for them. I feel feel good around them. I, I want to be with them. But the Bible says that that is an abomination to God. That is not love. Love must be controlled by truth. Love that is not controlled by truth becomes lasciviousness or becomes just just blatant, unbridled lust. Love must be controlled by truth. And there are many Christians, sadly, who are ignorant of truth. And we'd have to say with Paul in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Babes in Christ. And there are many Christians who suffer from a lack of knowledge. And I'll be the first to say that many times the fault is with the preacher. Sometimes the preacher preaches shallow sermons. The preacher doesn't study. I pray that God would help me to always be careful to seek to feed the flock. But oftentimes, the Christian him, or herself... As Spurgeon said, there's enough dust on the top of someone's Bible to write damnation in it. But sometimes, the Christian is so often at other things than the Word that they struggle in many areas. Not understanding things like how to love or understanding the Gospel and what Christ has done for them, what they have in Christ. I mean, you think about all the books that are written on this book. Think about tens of thousands of volumes. I used to go to the Bob Jones Library and just stand back in awe of all the books on theology and the New Testament, the Old Testament, in the library there. You think about all of the knowledge that God has for His people. And we ought to learn more of God's truth so that our love is empowered and controlled by this truth. That is a mark of spiritual maturity. How well do you know the word of God? How well do I know the word of God? Spiritual immaturity is someone who is extremely passionate but does not understand truth. Someone who has a great deal of zeal but does not have knowledge that controls that zeal. The third area that Paul says is with knowledge and then with discernment. And we will end with this last word. With judgment, he says. Now, the text says all judgment. This is a very interesting word, this word judgment. This word judgment is the Greek word aesthesis, And it's a very interesting word because it is the word from which we get aesthetics, aestheticism. And what that word means is the study of that which is beautiful. Someone might go into a beautiful building and say, this is aesthetically pleasing. The aesthetics are pleasing. What it looks like is pleasing. It is a beautiful sight. Someone who studies aesthetics might study music. What is beautiful as far as music is concerned? Or architecture or art. What is beautiful in architecture? What is beautiful in art? And the amazing thing about Paul's use of this word Is that Paul is drawing this idea into the idea of judgment. And what he's saying is this the Christian ought to have a spiritual sense by which he can discern that which is beautiful spiritually. What is pleasing to the Holy Spirit? What is pleasing to God? So, like somebody would look at five pieces of art and say, This is beautiful. But because of his expertise, he says, but these are very poorly made art, pieces of art. The Christian is to cultivate a spiritual sense by which when he hears certain teaching, by when he reads certain books, he is able to say, ah, that is not spiritually beautiful. That is not pleasing to my spirit, is not pleasing to the spirit of God. That is the idea of judgment, which really the best word is discernment. One commentator said discernment selects, classifies, and applies what is furnished by knowledge. Okay, so knowledge. Knowledge is the data that we have in our minds, believed on in the heart. Discernment is chiefly something that concerns the will. So knowledge means that we know all of this data, discernment says I am able to use that data in a right way. I'm able to use it. There are two ideas with regards to discernment. The ability to recognize what is right and the ability to do what is right, to apply what is right. So Paul says, no, no, no. It's not enough that you just know what is right But I want you to be able to recognize what is right, apply what is right in your daily life. That is discernment. So, in the first place, it is very important for the Christian to be able to recognize what is right. Many people cannot discern between good and evil in teaching in the church, etc. I think of Joel Olstein's church. Joel Olstein is a modern day preacher who does not preach the gospel. And there are 52,000 people that weekly attend the church. Now, I can tell you right now, not to be unkind to those people, but none of them have discernment. So, right there, 52,000 people don't have discernment. And you'll find people that are believers, that are passionate, and, and, and they're full of love, and they want to give themselves and give their will over to the good of others for the work of the Lord but they have no knowledge. And whatever knowledge they do have, they're not able to recognize what is truth. They're not able to discern what is right. And so they fall into all sorts of error and they stumble along in their Christian lives in a perpetual state, it seems, of spiritual immaturity. Now, they're always growing. Every Christian is always growing because the Holy Ghost is working in them. But they grow so slowly and they stumble so often that unfortunately they miss out on so much of what Christ has purchased for them because they lack discernment. They lack discernment. On the other hand, some Christians, if we're not careful, we can make everything a hill to die on. We can make a mountain out of a molehill of everything. Even little things that aren't as essential as others, we can blow them out of proportion with another brother or another sister because we lack discernment. Um, I know of one church that had a number of people, it was actually a free Presbyterian church, I know of one church that had a number of people leave the church and the church was severely hurt by it because all the people followed a certain teacher, a certain false teacher. And they sat under great preaching. So what was wrong is that they didn't have the knowledge and they heard it. They didn't have discernment. They didn't have a spiritual sense. And it tells me that it may have been the fact that they were not, not only in the word, but meditating on it, praying over it, and seeking to conform their lives to it, that ended in their following after error. Well, the second thing is that this discernment gives us the ability to live it out. This word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, is actually the word for wisdom, and it means to live out what we know. And so we may know, we read 1 Corinthians 13, now we understand what love is perhaps better than we did. We have knowledge, but discernment gives us the ability in whatever situation we are in to act in accordance with our knowledge. So say you're in a discussion with somebody and they say something and you don't know what to do. You know in your mind, I'm to love them, I'm to respond meekly, graciously, but you're struggling with, what do I do next? Well, discernment, discernment, in many ways is close to wisdom, is when the Christian is able to react in a right way, applying the knowledge that he has. An example would be somebody who watches a lot of basketball games. They watch a lot of basketball games. They can tell oh, buddy, I can tell you about how to dribble the ball, how to shoot a three-point. I can tell you all about what goes on. But you put them on the court, and they have zero hand-eye coordination. They're fumbling the ball everywhere. They're throwing the ball, and it's, it's hitting people in, you know, on the stands. That's like somebody who has a lot of knowledge but no discernment. Somebody has a not, lot of knowledge but they can't live it out. They don't understand how to live out their knowledge. And this is something that we need to keep in mind and end with this. We need to always keep in mind, you and I may know a lot. We may be even able to discern error, which is good, which is very good. But if we know a lot, but we can't apply our wisdom, excuse me, apply our knowledge wisely in day-to-day living, That our knowledge is really worthless, brothers and sisters. So if I if I'm a theologian and I and I know a lot, I've got a PhD and I can and that's not bad, but I can stand up and I can teach you all these things. But when I am with you, I'm I'm proud, I'm brash, I'm unkind, I don't know how to carry myself in a way that's in conformity with the knowledge I know. It's a lack of discernment, a lack of wisdom. And Paul does not want Christians to just know a lot. Paul wants Christians that have discernment. May God bless us to our hearts this morning. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee this morning for the clarity of Your word. And we pray, Father, that Thou wouldst cultivate in us knowledge, and discernment so that our love might grow and that we might be able to love rightly. Lord, give us grace, everyone here. Build them up for Jesus' sake. Amen.